Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only portion of class from today, Monday, November 22nd, 2021. In this episode, we talk about nutrition informatics and how I am every possible type of nerd that there is. So again, informatics is more than just using the computer. It's really understanding the importance of the way we collect data and then how we can get meaningful information out of that data. And so um, that is, it's really, this episode's an introduction to the many, many more concepts that underlie um, good informatics practice, but this is a good place to start. And in addition, happy Thanksgiving and safe travels to everyone this week. Did you know, can't, there's no reason you would have known this, but I wanted to throw it in here. Kitchen. So the kitchen, it's thekitchen.com, but kitchen spelled without an E, um, is this website that I spend way too much time on because they have recipes and product recommendations and just stories about food. Um, but did you know the editor-in-chief is actually based here in Columbus, Ohio? And so they have this whole series called The Way We Eat, and they interview various fascinating people. Um, and so I went through and found several of the way we eat features that actually feature people from around Columbus. So um, the Alexis Nicole um, Nelson, she is like this TikTok star about foraging plants and edibles from like urban environments. She's amazing. And they did a whole thing on her. And she's here in Columbus. Um, the beauty shop owner, former pastry chef, her beauty shop is in Grandview. If you want to go check that out. And then the pie shop. I regret that I did not remember this pie shop until last night. That pie shop's also here in like the short north area. Not short north? No, Clintonville. Clintonville area. And so like I love this website. I read this website way too much. And then they feature Columbus and I get all excited. I'm like, oh wait, the editor-in-chief is here. That's why I forgot. Um, but the top link is actually to, they do best of product reviews. So if you're a nerd into like kitchen tools, like maybe I am, I, they have really good product. They have not strayed me wrong yet. I'll say that right? They have, they have good stuff and at variety of price points usually. So that's, that's today's did you know. Did you know that I am a kitchen nerd on top of every other kind of nerd there is? Speaking of every other kind of nerd there is, um, we're going to go over nutrition informatics today. So if I have not yet firmly established that I am a nerd, I am also a nutrition informatics registered dietitian or NIRD, aka a nerd. Um, I have the Right? No, we made badges, you guys. We had like pins, we got magnets. I have a little wall charger with nerd on it. Like I have the swag to prove that I'm a nerd. Please appreciate the irony of that statement. So this is one of my favorite things. And I was watching, I started watching Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. Anybody, anybody seen that one? It is delightful, right? Where has it been all my life? I'm through like three episodes so far because it's perfect while I'm cleaning house and folding laundry. But somebody feed Phil. So Phil's going around the world trying different foods. And like three times an episode, he says, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. Right? And he says, I know I just said that, but this is the best thing I've ever eaten. I am Phil from Somebody Feed Phil. Like, this is my favorite thing. I know I said that last week, but this is my favorite thing too. <laughs> so yes, that was my other, did you know? Did you know Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix is extremely worth watching. It's an excellent show. But this is informatics. This is, so I was actually on the informatics committee. I was chair of the committee for a year. Um, and if you look at the reading for this week, um, I, I may or may not have been the author on those. So um, I'm a nerd, that's what I'm saying. What I want to do today, though, like informatics, I could do an entire semester on informatics. I really could. In fact, in the School of Health and, uh, School of Health and Rehab Sciences, we have a major called Health Information Management Systems. Like, you could do an entire major on understanding informatics. So I'm gonna do a very high level overview of what this is, um, so that you have a sense of what we're talking about when you go out into the field and encounter informatics. So basically, I just want you to um, understand the concepts. Um, hang on. My sister's coming to visit this weekend and she's packing to leave right now and I need to answer her question right now or she won't be able to pack, sorry. I'm turning this off now. Deal with it, sister. All right, <laughs> informatics. So this actually, so when we think of informatics, a lot of folks think of um, clinical setting. And yes, absolutely, it's in the clinical setting. But it's actually everywhere in nutrition practice. So whichever area of dietetics you're going into, informatics still applies. So what the heck am I talking about? 
The short version of informatics is the intersection of information, nutrition, and technology. So we'll get into this in a second, but informatics is really taking the data that you have and coming up with meaning from that data. And because we have computers and because we have all this advanced technology, we can now do this on a huge scale with thousands upon thousands, if not millions, of data points, right? So informatics is something people have done since the earliest times of tracking health outcomes and saying, hey, look, we have a plague in London and it's tied to this water pump. That's where the problem is. We'll shut that down and shut down the plague. That's a clinical application of informatics. That was like the 16th century, right? So informatics is just saying, we're gonna collect data and then get meaningful use out of it. We'll find something meaningful from that data. But in today's environment, that very much includes having a lot of technology to pull this off. So we'll talk about that. This image here, at one point, um, the informatics committee had its own blog called The Feed, which if you know anything about RSS feeds and blogging is multiple levels of nerdy, which is so appropriate. We have since uh, retired the feed, but I won't let it go because I love it. So I still have the icon up there. The long version of informatics is the effective retrieval, organization, storage, and optimum use. So we got to put it to use is a big piece here. Of information, data, and knowledge for food and nutrition related problem solving and decision making. Informatics is supported by the use of information standards. We'll talk about that information processes, and information technology. So one of the things to get out of the way, there's a big difference between a computer skill and an informatics skill. And this is something that people get confused a lot. So a computer skill is the ability to use a computer effectively to do your job. You've all got this down, right? Your job is to be students. You use computers constantly, whether it's a laptop or an iPad or another tablet or a phone. You can use those devices, many of you are using them right now, right, to take notes, to learn, to study. So you've got computer skill down. Informatics is the big picture view, knowing how you collect and use the information critical to your performance and basically proving your worth of your performance. So for example, a computer skill is something like the ability to open and view a spreadsheet. So if I come over here and click on this link, it's a skill to know that's a link and be able to click on it and to drag it over to the window where you can see it. So it's a skill to be able to open up this page, know that these types of cookies are not delicious, come down to the bottom and say, I want to see this Excel spreadsheet. I know that I can click on this Excel spreadsheet and then click open. This is a computer skill. Being able to open this file is a computer skill, which you can't see because it's on the other screen. Hang on. Drag, drag, drag. There we go. Boom. Computer skill, right? Do you understand what this means? Correct. That's the informatics skill, right? So the computer skill is the ability to navigate the computer, open up files, use the computer to do your job, right? You will learn electronic health records if you haven't already. You're going to get the computer skills down fairly easily. It's a very different skill to be able to look at this spreadsheet and say, oh, I see what they've done here. They've mapped the SNOMED CT identifiers to the ENCPT identifiers so we can have meaningful use of data from electronic health records. And I can see which group came up with the identifier, when the date, date when it was changed, the value set it belongs to, the terminology it originates from. I know what SNOMED CT is. I know what ICD-9 is. I know what ICD-10 is and then I can read across here and get to all of this. It's also an informatics skill to know that this is structured data, right? So structured data is a big deal when it comes to getting meaningful use out of information. So my quick and dirty example of structured data, the SEIs, right? Everyone's favorite, the student evaluation of instruction. If, you're not, if you didn't do your undergrad at Ohio State, you'll see it soon. You get some structured questions where you can rank me like one to five, right? So that there's, there's a structured set answer you can choose. You can choose a number. And then you get some unstructured questions, some open-ended questions, where you can describe what I did well, what I could improve, the fact that this is the worst class you've ever taken. You can put that in there, right? So the structured data is very easy to quantify and to analyze right away. You can say, out of a five, I got a two on average, right? The unstructured data, while useful, takes a little bit longer, because you have to be able to read and understand those words. 
So an informatics skill is knowing the difference between structured data and unstructured data, knowing when each would be valuable, because it's usually both, you need both, and also working towards systems that use more structured data, which is what you're seeing here, so that it's easier for us to pull outcomes, to pull results, um, to prove basically how effective nutrition care is. So that would be my quick and dirty example of informatics skill versus computer skill. So computer skill, opening all that up. Informatics skill, knowing what that means, right? Understanding where those data come from, what they mean, how they can be put to use, how one terminology maps to another, and we'll talk more about this as we go. As we get into this, I want to address this concept. Anyone heard the term digital native versus digital immigrant? I hate this term with the burning passion of a thousand fiery suns, right? So a digital native is thought to be a person born during or after the general introduction of digital technology. And through interacting with technology from an early age, this person has a greater um, understanding of the underlying concepts, right? So if you were born after computers became commonplace, you just know how to use computers. You don't need to be taught. I hate this analogy, right? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I was born after the invention of cars. I've been riding in cars since I was born. I still had to be taught how to drive a car, right? There's nothing innate about driving a car. You have to learn it. There's nothing innate about technology. Everybody of, anyone, of any age has to learn how to use it. My kids are frighteningly proficient at using an iPad, right? But that doesn't mean that they understand what they're doing, right? My son, when he was really little, I, uh, I deleted the YouTube app, YouTube for Kids app, because it was bringing up some weird stuff, and I was not okay with it. And he, he, could, he didn't know that I deleted it. He systematically, I watched him, he systematically went through and tried every icon that was red, trying to find the YouTube Kids app after I deleted it. Like, I'm a little afraid. But he doesn't actually understand what he's doing. And he has to learn it. So this idea of digital native. Digital native is someone who was born after technology became prevalent, and so there's the assumption that you all know how to use this stuff, right? Whereas a digital immigrant would be someone who was born prior to the advent of all this technology and that they have to learn it. What bull, right? Anyone of any age has to learn this stuff. So um, there's, yeah, drives me crazy. I bring it up because you may encounter preceptors who just assume because of your age you know how to do everything, and that's not fair to you. Right? That's not fair to anyone. Everybody has to learn this stuff. Another question I often get from students when I'm talking about informatics is, am I going to be replaced by a computer someday? Um, and the short answer is no. Right? Think back to when you did your um, diet records and you were entering those into various software systems. Was that process automatic? Was it really easy to find exact matches for all the foods that you know? Not even close, right? You need an intelligent human being in the middle interpreting and understanding the data in order to be able to code it into those software systems. And so this is the fundamental theorem of biomedical informatics, which says humans plus technology can more efficiently create knowledge. Technology is great, right? And I'll say this several times. Computers are fast, right? But they're stupid. Hang on to that thought. So if you're reading a document and you need to find a specific word, which is faster, reading the entire document or hitting Control F or Command F and searching for that phrase. Computers are fast, right? It's the Control F or the Command F. They can read the document faster than you can and find that match. But the computer is stupid. It doesn't know what that word means, right? Whereas you can read the word in context and understand it right away. Natural language processing is something that's being worked on, but it's wildly complex, particularly when we look at food and history information or clinical information, right? So having a person paired with a computer is better than just the computer, but the computer never replaces the person, right? Computers are fast, but they're stupid, right? And how do I know they're stupid? Because they're programmed by humans. That's how I know they're stupid. So um, with this, basically, um, you're never going to be replaced by a computer. You, you, got, you got to be there. That said, I understand the concern, in part because things have changed pretty darn quickly. And I'll go through this um, somewhat rapidly as well. Basically, to give you some context, um, I'm going to layer over some techno technological changes, some electronic health record changes, 
and then some changes within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics just to show you how rapidly this has changed. And if 1989 feels like forever ago, I can appreciate that thought, but it wasn't, I swear, even for those of us born before the internet, right? So 1989 is when the internet became useful as we know it. Basically, standards had to be written in order to transfer data from one institution to another. And so 1989 was sort of the birth of the internet as we know it today. It didn't really become terribly useful, though, until we got better search engines. So when the internet started out, you really had to know the exact URL of the place that you were going um, to get to a website. You couldn't just search. So search engines really started in 1993, but even they weren't very good until this small company called Google came along in 1998. You may have heard of them. Um, and they really created search engine optimization to the point where the internet became much more useful in terms of being able to find stuff. In 2004, you have the advent of social media like Facebook and LinkedIn. Now, here's where I typically make my joke about how Zuckerberg and I are the same age. The only difference is I finished college, except that that joke is getting less funny over the years because like, I think maybe finishing college and taking some ethics courses was probably a big idea, like probably a good thing, right? He's also a few billion dollars richer than I am, but whatever, we're same age. Um, but Facebook and LinkedIn were 2004, Twitter's 2006, and there's this little tiny thing called the iPhone that came around in 2007. Did you know there was a time you could be out to dinner with your friends, get in an argument about something trivial, and remain in that argument the rest of the night because you didn't have a phone and you couldn't look it up and prove who was right and who was wrong, right? The iPhone, I mean, it's a good joke, but the iPhone really changed the way we interact with information and our expectations around that information, and it changes the way we expect to receive health data as well. So now people can access, for better or worse, health recommendations on their device at any time from anyone, right? And you guys are all very aware of the implications of that in the last year and a half, two years, two years, we're pushing two years, aren't we? Holy moly. So it's really a very rapid change. On top of that, you have the change of how we keep electronic health records. So the EHR adoption phase happened almost 10 years ago in 2012, um, which again might sound like ancient history, but I promise it's not, it's very recent. The first recommendations for electronic health records came out in 1991, actually. Um, and then in 1999, there was this large report from the Institute of Medicine called To Air is Human. And that report found that approximately 98,000 deaths per year were happening in hospitals due to medical errors, avoidable medical <coughs> errors. The thought being, if you had a really good electronic health record, you could eliminate those types of errors. And it's errors like the doctor's handwriting is so bad, you can't tell which medication they prescribed, right? If you use only an electronic system, it doesn't matter how bad the handwriting is, right? You can, you can read it either way. So in 2003, you had another report crossing the quality chasm, basically recommendations for how we could build electronic health records that would improve quality of care. 2004, there was an executive order for the creation of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, or the ONC, um, and a goal that every American would have an electronic health record, I think by 2014? Yes. Everyone should have an electronic health record within a decade. By 2009, that was not happening. I can tell you that right now. And so we have the um, Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Legislation, High Tech Act. I would love to be on the committee who names these things, right? Who comes up with the names for these legislations? The High Tech Act, though, basically created incentives. So those incentives basically came down to money. So by 2012, if you adopted electronic health records, you would get more money from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services for any services that you were able to show you had billed and used electronic health records. And then as the EHR adoption phased in, as time went by, you would actually get less money if you were still doing things on paper. So that made a big difference in terms of people rapidly deciding to adopt um, electronic health records. So for example, this looks like a cellular data coverage map, but it's actually the hospitals receiving incentive payments for electronic health record adoption and meaningful use from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So you can see in May of 2011, not that many, 
And by December of 2013, a lot of hospitals had adopted electronic health records. This was a huge deal. I remember here at Ohio State at the medical center, they called it the Big Bang, right? Going from paper records to electronic health records. When I was a dietetic intern, that was 2006 to 2008, the only hospitals I went to that had electronic health records at that time were very small hospitals because it was easier for them to transition than for a large institution. So by 2011, Ohio State was still using paper charts, right? 10 years ago, we were still using paper charts for our patients. Can you imagine, right? So you really had to incentivize this to get people to shift from one to the other. And I bring this up because it's a huge shift. It has major implications for how we take care of patients and who designed the electronic health record, what did they include, and what got left out, right? So one of the things you may encounter is that the electronic health record doesn't capture nutrition data the way you want it to, right? And I got to say, it's not your problem. It's not a problem with you, right? It's your problem. But it's not a problem with you. It's a problem with the record. And those things can be changed. Those things can be evaluated and changed. So with all of this, now in green, I've layered in um, what the academy has done towards informatics. Basically, you can cut to the chase and see that the nutrition care process, as you know it, was only started in 2003. The evidence analysis library was 2004. Um, and then nutrition informatics as a, as a thing the academy cared about started in 2007. It became a committee in 2010, and then they split off. They have the informatics committee and the interoperability and standards committee became a new committee in 2014. And then in 2019, the committee actually dissolved and it became a dietetics practice group. Basically, they said, we've got thousands of dietitians working in informatics. We need a practice group around this idea. So I bring this up because with the, the rapid change of how we interact with information, right, thanks to the internet and phones, and the rapid adoption of electronic health records, it's still a very fast change from paper to electronic. There's also been a lot of work at the academy to make sure that dietetics is included in those electronic health records, that there's the opportunity to document the effectiveness of your care. And so that's where we end up with the nutrition care process and the standardized terminology. So you've all been working with the electronic um, ENCPT, electronic nutrition care process and terminology. I am so old, I have a book of the NCP, like a flip book. That's, I'm a thousand years old, you guys. But it's all electronic now. Why? Why do we care so much? Why is this worth doing? The goal with all of this is we want data to follow the patient. And why does that matter? So I went to that wedding a couple weeks ago, and we drove to Chicago, Illinois. And on the drive there, we had to stop and get more gas like you do. And we're in the state of Indiana. I live in Ohio, but now we're in Indiana. I can take out my credit card, use it at that gas station, and I can get gas, right? The, the Indiana-based gas station doesn't care where I'm from in the country, probably doesn't care where I'm from in the world. That data is interoperable. They will take my financial information and take my money and give me gas in return, right? But there's no issue, right? Not a problem. So that data, we've got standards around how credit card information transfers. They're like, yep, you're good. You, you're, your credit is good with us. We'll give you the gas. Go on with your day. If, however, while walking around the city of Chicago with my sister, I were to be hit by a bus, which is always my example. If I were hit by a bus and rushed to the emergency room and I couldn't speak for myself, there is no card that anyone can swipe that would give that hospital my health information, right? There's no, I don't have a medical identifier card that they could like stick in a machine and like, oh, she goes to the Ohio State University Western Medical Center. Let's pull all of her records, her past medical history. What's relevant for her? What medications does she take, right? What medications is she currently taking? What are her previous injuries? What do we need to know? None of that. None of that transfers, right? The only way at this point you get that information while I'm in a hospital in Illinois is I'm awake and I tell you or someone from my family is there and tells you, right? We can't transfer that data, which is crazy if you think about it, right? So interoperability means we want to be able to have health information exchange, be able to move information from one place to another. We're getting better. The first time I ever encountered a system that had a health information exchange was actually the University of Georgia Student Health Center, right? So in 2008, 
you could go to, you could go to the dental clinic and they'd pull up your electronic health record and then you could go to your like an annual physical and they'd pull up the same electronic health record right but that was all in one building right and it was just serving the student population at Georgia and when I left that information stayed there it didn't follow me Ohio State's getting better. If I go to anywhere in the Ohio State family of buildings, right, they can pull up the same record. And the Ohio State my chart will even talk to the Ohio Health my chart. Get out of town. It's like Coke and Pepsi got together and agreed on some things, right? It's kind of a big deal. But again, if I leave the state of Ohio or even if I leave the Columbus area, wherever I end up, the data doesn't follow me. We don't have interoperable data. And that is a big deal, right? So we need that kind of information so you can provide continuity of care if someone is in a different place. It would be great for tracking things like, um, well, with the opioid epidemic, right? How do we track how many prescriptions I've received and where I got them and what I got them for? We don't have good data for that. Um, we're getting a little bit better with um, COVID vaccines, right? Tracking vaccines. Um, but that's been no small feat to pull that off. So why don't we have this? Why isn't this already done? In part, because we need standard terminologies. Computers are fast, but they're stupid, right? They only know what a term means if you tell it what that term means. And if you make any changes to that term without telling the computer, hey, this means the same thing, the computer doesn't know. Whereas you, brilliant human beings that you are, can totally understand that hemoglobin A1C and HbA1c mean the same thing, right? But unless you teach a computer that those two terms mean the same thing, it doesn't know what to do with that information. So if one hospital charts everything with hemoglobin A1c and another hospital charts everything with HbA1c, those two systems won't talk to each other unless you create a standardized terminology that is the same across both institutions. So with this, why these terminologies are so complicated. <clears throat> this gets at um, natural language processing also, and like why that's so hard for a computer to do. So <clears throat> there is a four-letter word on the slide here, for those of you listening to the audio later, and it is L-E-A-D. What does this word mean? No context, but what does it mean? Yes. Lead versus lead, right? So what does it mean to lead? Okay, so lead can be a verb, right? You can lead something, you can be a leader. Can lead be a noun? EKG lead, right? Um, what is lead? It's a t so it could be a lead pipe, right? It could be an adjective. You're describing a noun now, right? So we have lead pipe. So we have, yes, it could be a verb, it could be a lead, to lead, it could be a noun, it could be an EKG lead, it could be a noun, it could be lead, like lead poisoning, right? It could be an adjective, like lead pipe, right? You as a human could see this word in a sentence and understand immediately what that means, right? Computers are stupid. They can't do that. There is natural language processing, right? We are getting better at this. Take any smart home device. You can tell it a command and it will tell you the weather. It will play a song for you. Like, yes, we're getting there. Do you know how complicated human beings are, right? Think about, again, entering your diet record data into those software systems. You couldn't just type in there like, I ate a turkey sandwich, and it know all the details, right? For as complicated as collecting nutrition data is, and I really think that it is complicated, having done this for many years, humans are worse right? Humans are way more complicated. So yes, there's work being done in this area, but in order to make this work, we have to make sure that the language one computer speaks is the same as what the next computer speaks is the same as the next one after that. This is where we get standardized terminologies where a bunch of humans still have to get together and decide that this term is going to map or translate to this term and mean the same thing everywhere we go. We also need to look at something called human-readable data versus machine-readable data, right? So humans like things formatted, for example, in tables. We like bold. We like italics. We like larger font sizes. Computer doesn't care about any of that, right? It can't see that stuff. 
So what you have on the um, left would be the human readable form where it's, it's taking the data and presenting it to you as a chart. Love a good chart, right? Easy to follow, easy to find what I need, information's there, perfect. That doesn't help the computer though. In fact, for the computer to be able to present that chart to you, it needs this XML, this code, this machine readable data. So notice in the machine readable data, we have a lot of prefixes basically telling the computer what type of data is about to come after that and when that type of data is done, right? So HTML, CSS, XML, those are all machine readable data. A human could look at this and figure it out, right? But it's gonna take a lot longer than looking at the table, right? Especially if the table's presented the same way every time, you know where to look on the table for the information you need, way faster than the machine readable. Also, barcodes or QR codes, right, does not help me as a human. I have no idea what that means. But computers love those. Those are really easy to read, right? So very often a patient's like armband would have their name and date of birth printed on there in, in text and a barcode that you could scan if you're going to give them medication, for example, right? So human readable and machine readable, two different ideas, often need both. <clears throat> as far as standardized terminologies, there are a lot of them. Uh, the running joke with standardized terminologies is if you don't like the ones that exist now, just wait, there'll be new ones soon. So to that end, <clears throat> International Classification of Disease, or ICD codes. There are different versions of ICD. ICD-9 is the version that we use in the United States up until fairly recently, despite the fact that ICD-10 had been adopted by the rest of the world in like the 1970s. Um, so ICD-9. ICD-9 is, you know, the physician or, in the case of a nutrition diagnosis, the dietitian provides a diagnosis, right? But then we can classify that diagnosis using a standardized terminology so that later on we can pull that data and say how many people had that diagnosis, right? Or how many people had a particular outcome. So ICD-9, the number of codes that we had under ICD-9 was about 13,500, right? That sounds like a lot of codes, but again, humans are wildly complex. So I have a completely ridiculous example to illustrate how moving from ICD-9 to ICD-10 was a very big deal. So in ICD-9, if you come in here and search the term shark, there are no ICD-9 codes that match that fragment. There are no ICD-9 codes that match the term shark, right? So if you were bit by a shark, prior to, I think, 2015, when we moved, finally, moved to ICD-10. If you were bitten by a shark prior to 2015, we couldn't chart that. And we could chart it, but you wouldn't be able to assign an ICD code to it. But in ICD-10, if you search the term shark, you can now find all of these ICD-10 codes related to a shark bite. So you could specify that you were bitten by a shark on an initial encounter, or bitten by a shark on a subsequent encounter, which I have some concerns. If you were bitten by a shark on a subsequent encounter, what were you doing getting back in the water after you'd already been bitten by a shark once? Why? Why does this code exist? So it's a ridiculous example, and I hope none of you were ever bitten by a shark to find out, right? But it shows how much more detailed ICD-10 is than ICD-9. You couldn't be bitten by a shark as far as ICD-9 is concerned. Whereas with ICD-10, you could be bitten by a shark once, you could be bitten by a shark twice, you could be struck by a shark instead of bit, you could be struck, you could have other contact. I don't know what that means, I don't wanna know, right? So we have a lot of options. But the, the use of this, right, why do we care about this? ICD nine and 10 help us classify diseases, which makes it much easier to research the prevalence of things. So if you're really worried about getting bitten by a shark, we could now pull ICD-10 codes and say it's vanishingly rare that a person is actually bitten by a shark, right? But if they are, we have a code for it. A more practical example would be, if you looked at the ICD-9 codes for something like a heart attack, you, there certainly were codes for that, right? But with ICD-10, they're much more specific. Each code can really specify like where in the heart did the blockage occur and what was the extent of the damage, right? So we went from about 14,000 codes to about 70,000 codes, right? 
That's a huge shift. It had major implications for the electronic health records that we just barely started using, by the way, right? So we started using EHRs in 2012, and we shifted to ICD-10 around 2015. As a patient, I had to go from learning my ICD-9 code for my diagnosis to my ICD-10 code for my diagnosis. Most patients don't have to do that, but when you have a rare diagnosis, what are you going to do? So this is just one example of a standardized terminology. There's SNOMED um, CT, so Standardized Nomenclature of Medical Terms Clinical Terminologies. There's um, CPT codes. So as dietitians in practice, you might need to know the CPT codes. They're current procedural terminology codes. CPT codes are used generally for billing purposes. So to give you an example of CPT codes at work, um, the, the ring splints that I have, this is called a swan neck splint, this one right here. And so there's one CPT code for this type of splint. When I billed my insurance to get reimbursed for having purchased these, they denied all but one of my requests because you can only use the CPT code once, right? So I had to get a letter of medical necessity from my occupational therapist that said that I have 10 fingers. It's funny, but it's true, right? So these standardized terminologies work for us both good and ill, right? So the insurance company was like, well, you can only bill for that procedure once. I'm like, but I have 10 fingers, thank goodness. And they're all effective. So standardized terminologies help us track things better, but they can also make things stupid because computers are stupid because they're programmed by people who are sometimes also stupid. What can I say? So the goal of all of this, though, the goal of all this is standardized terminology is that we do have interoperable data that can go from one place to another. So what we need to make sure is that we have interoperability to make data exchange useful enough to improve patient care. This slide comes from a colleague of mine basically showing if you have two different systems, if you have a hospital system trying to transfer data to, say, a long-term care facility, and one system says 80 grams protein, 60, 60, 60 consistent carbohydrate, 2 grams potassium, 800 milligrams phosphorus. And the other computer system doesn't know how to read that, first of all. That's very detailed. How could the other computer system not know how to read that? But if the other computer system only knows how to say renal diabetic diet, right, then that recommendation from one RD doesn't transfer to the other RD at another facility, right? So we have to have the ability to exchange information, to exchange data between systems so that it's useful when it gets there. And this is, I promise, it's shockingly hard to do. So we want details. We want to be able to express the um, nutrition content in the standards to the level that we can get down to this nitty gritty and make sure that the patients get good continuity of care. With that, this slide is also from Lindsay, that colleague of mine. With the requirements that we have in place, in order to get reimbursement for nutrition care, in order to track the outcomes of nutrition care, we have to have really well-designed electronic health records so that we can use the nutrition care practice, which the nutrition care practice uses the ENCPT, which is one terminology, right? But the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services use SNOMED and ICD-10 and LOINC. LOINC is Logical Observational Identifiers Numerical Codes. Did I mention I'm a nerd, right? The point is, they use different standardized terminologies. So in order to get you, the RD, to be able to speak to the um, Malnutrition Quality Improvement Initiative, to be able to speak to Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, we have to build an electronic health record where you can use something familiar to you, the ENCPT, in a standardized way with structured data, right? So that that structured data can be mapped or translated to ICD-10 and SNOMED codes or LOINC codes. And those can then be sent to all these different computers, all these different institutions, all these different systems, and that information be understood. The big idea here is basically we speak one language in dietetics, and all of these systems speak different languages. And we have got to have a translator between one terminology and the next terminology to make sure that the data can move one, one place to the next. So basically, if you're mapping a term, mapping a term means that the RDN uses the standardized terms from the ENCPT it can then be translated, it has equivalents, right? Which these equivalents don't exist unless a group of humans gets together and decides, 
which ENCPT code matches which SNOMED ZT code or which ICD-10 code, right? So the Academy has an interoperability and standards committee, a group of experts who get together and work at an international level to make sure that the ENCPT terms match to SNOMED or ICD or LOINC codes. So that matching means that you can then transfer the data everywhere else, which is a big darn deal for making sure that the data follows the patient for interoperability, for making sure you get paid, right? Do you listen to the podcast um, the week we had NFPE, the podcast about reimbursement for malnutrition care? Anybody, anybody, anybody catch what a difference it made if you could accurately document the presence of malnutrition for reimbursement? Lydia, do you remember? It was thousands of dollars, right? It was like double. So when hospitals get reimbursed for care, they have to basically, if it's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they have to document, these are the, this is the level of care we provided, and then CMS will provide reimbursement for that. And that particular episode of, um, was it the Aspen podcast? Yeah, it was the Aspen podcast. She gave an example where for a critically ill patient who um, probably had malnutrition, but malnutrition was not documented, the reimbursement was around $4,000 for that patient. And then if you can properly document the malnutrition which was present, you're not making it up, let's not go into legal territory here, but if you can document the malnutrition that was present, the reimbursement changed from about $4,000 for that patient to about $8,000 for that patient, right? It matters, right? Money talks and it always will, but also you're gonna provide better care if you can document that this malnutrition is present and we can follow that up and see that they're improving. So yes, money is a, it's a big part of this and always will be, um, but taking better care of your patients is also kind of a big deal. And this is, this is how we get that done. So with that, there's a huge initiative called Electronic Clinical Quality Measures, or ECQM. It's basically a tool that we can use to document the burden of malnutrition within facilities, as well as, so it, it costs money to take care of a malnourished patient, right? So we gotta document the burden of taking care of those patients, as well as the positive outcomes that can be realized when malnutrition is identified and properly treated. We can help make people better. So this is a big deal because in order to be able to show electronic clinical quality measures, which are something required by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you have to be able to document the National Quality Forum number in QF. Hey, look, it's another standardized terminology, right? So you gotta be able to document the NQF as it maps to the CMS number, another standardized terminology, and what that means. So the requirements here are things like completing a malnutrition screening within 24 hours of admission. We talked about these, right? The MNA, the MST, the MUST, those screeners that could be done by anyone on the healthcare team, right? You could document that that screener was completed within 24 hours of admission. And that shows that you're providing clinical quality. And then separate from that, assessment or an NFPE, right? Completion of an assessment for patients identified as at risk for malnutrition within 24 hours of the screening, right? So you screen within 24 hours and if someone is flagged as at risk, then within 24 hours of that, they should be assessed. You can show that you have a nutrition care plan for patients identified as malnourished, and you can show that you have appropriate documentation of a malnutrition diagnosis. These are all big, big deals in terms of making sure that we're providing adequate care and that we're documenting it. And it is, it's tied to money and to reimbursement. The electronic clinical quality measures should align with the care workflow that you're already doing as part of the nutrition care process. So notice we have ADIME built in here, right? We have assessment, diagnosis, a couple extra steps in the middle there, um, intervention, and then monitoring and evaluation. Basically, at each step of this process, you can document those electronic clinical quality measures and make sure that you're showing that you are providing this adequate care. So I know this whole informatics thing is a little bit out of left field or it feels that way. And I know I said it applies to all areas of practice and then I honed in on clinical, but that's because I could spend the rest of the year just talking about this and I have today to do it. So it does fit into clinical care. Other ways that you will see informatics 
I mean, heck, barcodes, right? Think about food safety and tracking foods after there's been a food recall. That's informatics, being able to say, hey, if you've got this barcode or this number, this product number on your food, pitch it or bring it back to the store. That's also informatics. That's using machine-readable data to track the, the, the transit, basically, of food products. What was it Kroger recently? Kroger recently re recalled like all of their baked goods for traces of metal fragments, right? I think it was Country Goods brand. We, we don't, don't eat those, right? That's informatics, right? <laughs> it's all good. The microphone probably did pick that up, but that's okay. <laughs> it's not a problem. Thank you for waking everyone back up, right? This is not everyone else's favorite topic. It's mine, but it's not theirs. So the point is, informatics is everywhere, right? And so it's not just in the clinical setting, but since this is one of the most important places where we really need to emphasize this and make sure that we're documenting how effective dietitians are, mostly so we can hire more of them, honest to goodness, right? We need more staff most places. Um, this is a way that we can do that. And you all want jobs eventually, right? So you would, you would like there to be documentation for the need of dietitians. So with that, you're all already very familiar, I assume, with the electronic nutrition care process and terminology, ENCPT. Does everybody have access to this, has used it? Do you have questions about this? Or do you have it all figured out? Again, I'm a 1,000 years old. I have the book, right? I have, I have a little spiral-bound book of the International Dietetics and Nutrition Terminology, because that's what we used to call it. So with this, basically, it's... It's an example of a standardized terminology where you're selecting from predetermined diagnoses, interventions, signs and symptoms, so that the data is structured, so that we can pull that data much more easily, right? So you can average out my SEI score much more quickly than you can read through every open-ended comment, right? So structured data, that's what we're getting at with the ENCPT. It's also what we're getting at with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Health informatics infrastructure. Has anybody played with Andy before? You get to for this class. I'm going to make a whole other video about this because your assignment related to Andy is due the last day of classes. It's not due this week, right? Maybe very clear. But you could start looking at it if you wanted to. Please don't. Please take a week off. Um, but the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Health Informatics Infrastructure is built on the ENCPT, the Electronic Nutrition Care Process and Terminology. And it's, it's an example of basically an electronic health record, and it has sort of a playground area that we're going to play in for this assignment coming up. You do need to be a member of the academy to use Andy, which both programs require you to be a member of the academy, so that shouldn't be an issue. Um, and then you actually have to set up a separate login. So again, there'll be a whole other video on this. But what you're going to do for this assignment is create your own case study. You've seen a zillion and 10 case studies at this point, right? You get to make up your own. And actually, I have some ideas of like topics. If you could do a case study for me on XYZ topics, that would be really helpful. Because what I've done actually in the past is if a student puts together a case study and it's really good, I use it the next year. So if that's any incentive, you can make next year students suffer by creating really good case studies. And also, I have a whole list of things that I've never covered that would be really good case studies. But you're going to make your own case study, right? And then you are going to enter it into Andy as if you were documenting on this fictional patient that you've created. So when you get into Andy, you can choose basically your whole ADIME process, your assessment, your diagnosis, right? So you can say inadequate iron intake. What did I, what did I back up here? I said iron as my assessment somehow. Inadequate iron intake, right? So iron intake is low or below goal. The diagnosis is inadequate iron intake. You're choosing from all of these drop-downs. The intervention is going to be a general healthy diet. And then notice we've chosen a structured term, but there is still the option to put some open-ended text in here, right? So you can do that. The reason we're going to do all of this is it's good practice. I'd like you to get some practice with Andy. And also, when you're done, you can pull reports out of Andy. And I want you to see what these reports can do. You are going to enter data using the drop-down lists, which are an example of structured data, and open-ended text. But when you pull the reports, you can pull a SNOMED report, where it takes the terms that you have entered, the, the words you recognize, and connects it 
to the term that we have in the SNOMED terminology so that this data is interoperable, right? So the point of this assignment is you get to be creative and come up with a new case study. You get to integrate everything we've done all semester from the ABCDEs and coming up with your own ABCDEs for this fictional patient. And then you get to take that data and practice putting it into an electronic health record in the form of Andy, right? Again, there'll be more videos because I don't expect anyone to get started on this this week, um, so we'll explain. But the reason Andy exists, basically, is so that dietitians in practice could contribute to a national registry, a national database of information about patients. It's, it's anonymized, but you can track which patient is which and um, track um, their outcomes over time. But then also researchers can pull data from Andy and be able to show like, hey, dietitians are really effective at treating malnutrition. They're really effective at treating low iron intake, right? So we should get reimbursed for doing these things because we're so good at it. And it's really the basis of medicine at this point is evidence-based practice. So evidence-based practice is basically saying we can verify by observation or experience rather than theory or pure logic. So not just because we said so, we can show that these things are effective because we have data, we've backed it up. And then for fun, anybody remember Mythbusters? This show has not been on TV in a long time. I have the Mythbusters guy saying, remember kids, the only difference between screwing around in science is writing it down, which is a joke, but he's not far off, right? We really have to document, we have to chart on our patients to be able to show, if you didn't, my mom is a nurse and she would always say, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. You have to chart on what it is that you were doing for your patients. And if we can do that in a standardized way and then pull that data from thousands of institutions, from millions of patients, then it's much easier to show the effectiveness of dietetics practice. So with that, there are some details. We'll come back to this later. There's training videos, but that is enough for your Monday morning. Mm -hmm.